0: intimately, knowing His ways, knowing His heart, His character. You know, it's so very important that we represent Him well. Something happened not far from my city, uh, in another city not far away, the same time that we started our church back in 1987. There was a little lady who went to service one night, and uh, she went up to be prayed for in the prayer line, and she fell down and uh, there was a large gentleman, probably 250 to 300 pounds, who was standing next to her, and he was prayed for. He also fell down, but he fell on top of her, and he broke her hip. Uh, She didn't know that she had a broken hip. Nobody else around her knew that she had a broken hip, but she was in great pain, and she was trying to tell people that she was in pain and that she needed help and was trying to get up, and the evangelist Uh, rebuked her, told her to be quiet, told her to lay there under the power of God, not to disrupt, and so forth. Anyway, the woman went home, and a couple of days later she died because of this injury that she sustained at church. Uh, There was a lawsuit, of course, and the woman's family sued the church and the evangelists, which both groups settled out of court. I, I made a decision at that time that I was going to judge works of God, that I was not gonna take just anything that people said, this is the Holy Spirit, and allow that to happen in my church. I'm not gonna do that, and that's how I founded Church on the Move. It brought me into conflict with a lot of charismatic leaders. And uh, I didn't go gunning for them, but there were times that I identified things that came into our city. Now, when it was happening nationally, most of the time I said nothing, but I might talk about something that was going on and say, "Now, this is why we wouldn't go this route. This is why I wouldn't do this," and I'm not attacking the people. I'm I, I don't know what's going on in their heart, but but the action, the behavior is the thing that I have to call attention to. We don't have to do this in order to love God, to show that we love God. And so I made it a habit of that. And one of the things that I want you to see is that God doesn't lead us to do things that are stupid. God does not lead us to do things that are dumb. I don't know how many times as a young believer I heard pastors and leaders who had failed miserably with things that they said God told them to do, and it didn't work. And uh, then they would get up and say, I I don't know what happened, but I just know that I heard from God. Well, that's just not true. And uh, because God doesn't lead us into things that are disastrous, God leads into fruitfulness. Uh, Psalm 23, he leads beside the still waters. In other words, he doesn't lead us into tumult. Psalm 37, 23 says this, "...the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way." So the counterfeit spirit, and there is one, that masquerades as the Holy Spirit, pushes the child of God into impossible endeavors. I had another friend who died tragically of a heart attack because he was attempting to build this series of buildings that was just very expensive, way beyond his ability to raise the money, but he was convinced it was something that God told him to do. And I wouldn't question that God didn't tell him to do that. What I would question is God didn't tell him to do it all in one stroke. Uh, because it, it put him under. He was not able to do it, and the resultant stress uh, took his life early. And had he known this principle about how we follow God, the heart of God, the character of God, knowing Him intimately, we know that He doesn't lead us into crazy situations. The Lord doesn't lead you to take a leap. He leads us in steps. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And people will often point to stories, especially in the Old Testament, where there was something really big that happened, where God led people to do something crazy. So I want to turn you to probably the story that most typifies what I'm talking about. And it's found in Second Chronicles 20. We'll begin reading at verse 1. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them, besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from beyond Syria, and they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, Jehoshaphat didn't go out looking for this. This was not presumptive. This is not something that he did on his own. He didn't bring this about. Didn't happen that way at all. All right, they begin to pray, and the Bible says in verse 14, while this prayer meeting is going on, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, and I'm sure I'm butchering some of these Hebrew names, Mataniah, the son of uh, Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle." Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. So the scripture says, So they rose early in the morning. They went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went... Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, and who should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, And there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. Now I want to dissect this just a bit because it's such an important story. First of all, they didn't make physical contact with the enemy. They went toward the enemy, but they were not in close proximity. On the journey, on the road, before they got to this place is when they began to sing. And as they neared the place, they didn't walk blindly into battle, singing and praising while arrows are being shot at them. did not happen. By the time they got to the place, the army of the enemy was already destroyed. So there's a point that I want to make in this, and it's that God does not lead you into destruction. God does not lead you to do something that you cannot do. They sang and they praised the Lord. In other words, it's in their power. They didn't have to work the miracle. God will never ask any of us to do a thing that we cannot do. There was a woman whose sons were going to be taken into slavery, 2 Kings 4, and she went to Elisha the prophet and told him what was going on. And he asked her this question, what do you have? And I love this about the Lord. The Lord always wants to use something that you are familiar with, something that's in your grasp, something that is attainable. And he says, what do you have? You you, You know how we think? When we need a lot of money, say, or we don't know what we're going to do, we start thinking about out there. Who out there is going to come in with a whole lot of money and bail us out? But God doesn't think that way. He always wants you to take a look at what is in your hand. What do you have in your house? Is exactly what the prophet said. She said, I have nothing but a little jar of oil. He said, okay, go home, borrow all the empty vessels you can find. Bring them into your home. When you've filled your home with these, shut the door and then begin to pour out. So she did that. God did not ask her to do anything that she could not do. She could borrow empty vessels, no miracle there. She could take a little jar of oil and turn it upside down and begin to pour. No miracle there. What was miraculous is that that jar kept pouring, only God did that. So God will never lead you to do something that demands a miracle. He will lead you to things that produce a miracle, but He won't force you to do the miracle. The supernatural is His domain, not yours. You and I only have to take the steps of obedience. When Jesus fed the multitude in the wilderness, what did He tell the apostles to do? Make the people sit down on the grass in companies of 50. Is there anything miraculous about that? No. It's very simple. So they made the people sit down on the grass in companies of 50. Once they had the multitude divided into 100 groups, 50 people each group, then Jesus prayed and began to hand out the food. The food was multiplied as he passed it out. It never ran out. He, they kept coming to him with baskets. He kept returning full baskets back to him. I don't know exactly how that miracle worked, but I know it worked. And the point that I do know is this, no one had to work that miracle. All they had to do was do what they were doing. God will never ask you to do anything supernatural. So you need never commit yourself to a place of presumption, going off your medication before you've had a manifestation of your healing. What I want you to see is that God can do this without you having to force the issue. Real quick story. Whit had broken his arm. I was out of town when he did it. I came home, and it was my first night back home after he'd broken his arm. He had his arm in a sling. It was a hairline fracture, and it was very painful. As I was telling the kids a bedtime story, I accidentally bumped the arm, tucking Whit in, and he cringed and whimpered a bit because it hurt. I prayed over the kids, went back down the hall to go downstairs, and the Holy Spirit said, you're not done. Go back. So I went back into the boy's bedroom, and I knelt beside the bed, and I said, we're going to pray a little bit more. So we began to pray in the Spirit. As I was in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, tell Whit to take his arm out of the sling. And I told the Lord. I said, Lord, if, if he shows any pain... I stop. I'm not doing this. But the Lord didn't scold me. So I went back in. I said, Witt, very carefully, I want you to take your arm out of that sling. But if it hurts in any way, you stop right there. Okay? Yes. He started unbuckling the sling. I said, does it hurt? He said, no, Dad, it doesn't hurt. And I said, go ahead, pull your arm out. I said, does it hurt now? No, it doesn't hurt, Dad, no. He started moving his arm all around. He said, no, Dad, it doesn't hurt. I had no point to prove. I didn't do it before the world. I didn't do it to get a story. I did it because I love my God and I love my son. And the Holy Spirit led me to do something that did not demand a miracle, but I participated with a miracle. I did what I was supposed to do. But at the same time, I'm watching to see, is there a healing here? And there was. And only when I saw there was a healing, did I tell him to go ahead and fully remove that sling. So what I want you to see is that God doesn't lead us to do presumptive things in order to prove a point. See you tomorrow.